Welcome. This is Out of the Ordinary Books, where we believe that the books we read help us better understand the lives we lead. I'm Lisa Jo Baker. And I'm Christy Purifoy. And every week we share an Out of the Ordinary book and how it can help you make sense of your story too. These aren't book reviews or recommendations. These are conversations about some of our best friends, worst enemies, toughest coaches, most passionate lovers, and kindest teachers that line our bookshelves. We hope these conversations help you see the deeper story hidden right in plain sight in your ordinary life, too. Get comfy. Here we go. I've been a fan of Sean Smucker's writing for ages. His books seamlessly, beautifully weave realism with fantasy. His stories are mind-blowingly creative and deeply meaningful. They are page-turners that grapple with life's weightiest questions. In particular, Sean's stories explore the meaning of death and dare to ask whether death can be a gift. Sean has written books for young people and novels for adults, and Lisa Joe and I both read his latest novel, The Weight of Memory, in about a day. We just couldn't put it down. It's an adult novel, but I wouldn't hesitate to share this one with my teenagers. Today, Sean is reading the first two chapters of The Weight of Memory for us. Hearing this story begin in his own voice is such a treat. You'll notice, I think, What a down-to-earth yet elegant writer Sean is. His writing is beautiful, but it never draws attention to itself or gets in the way of the story. And the story? Well, the story is excellent. It has my favorite kind of ending. It's what I call a sticky ending, meaning it's something better than a traditional happy or sad ending. A sticky ending is one that sticks with you prompting you to revisit the story you just read and the questions the story invited you to ask. With its focus on death, you might think this would be a sad novel. It isn't. Yes, there is sadness, but there is so much more. There is adventure, there is mystery, there is magic, and finally, there is the surprise of joy. Chapter 1 any time to three months. Her words hover in the air, humming birds, and I hold my breath, glance up at the clock above the door, and watch the red second hand twitch its way through a minute. I pinch my bottom lip in between my teeth. There's a small piece of paper under her chair, the tiniest corner torn off, left from the previous examination. What news did that patient receive? What diagnosis? What will I leave behind? I'm sorry, Dr. Cortez, I say. Could you repeat that? Each of my blinks is like the shutter of an old camera, holding for an extra moment so that I see the negative of her on the inside of my eyelids. I reach up and rub my eyes. Why do I not feel a deep sadness? I think it would be appropriate for me to feel a deep sadness. Mr. Elias, she begins again, and her words have a lullaby quality to them, as if she's explaining a monster to a child. The darkness sleeping under the bed, the movement subtly shifting in the corner of the room after the light turns off. My mind wanders, this time to you, to the happiness on your face when you see me waiting outside of the school, 
or how heavy your eyes are when you're trying not to fall asleep. I think of all the made-up tales you have told me, all the imaginary friends, all the whispering voices. I realize in that moment that I can never tell you this news, because it's a monster far too scary, a story far too dark for an 11, almost 12-year-old. There's relief with the realization that I do not have to tell you, that I will not tell you. So I look over at Dr. Cortez, finally ready to listen. Mr. Elias, she says, do you understand what I'm telling you? I wonder how doctors can possibly appear to be so young, like high school students. Dr. Cortez's hair is held together in a bright pink scrunchie, and she has no wrinkles at the corners of her eyes. We have become friends through the last months, closer as the news has become increasingly worse. She has always tried to soften the blows. The thought hums through my mind that this is a practical joke, one of those television shows where they play pranks on unsuspecting chumps. I smile to myself, eager for this to be true. I actually check the room for a hidden camera, perhaps in the light switch or in that pointy wall mount behind the glass jar of cotton swabs or in the tiny pendant that sways, barely visible inside the neck of her blue blouse where the top button sags, undone. But there is the knot on my head behind my left temple, that is no practical joke, and there are waves of nausea, moments when I nearly black out, those are not practical jokes. And Dr. Cortez wouldn't lie to me, maybe it's God, maybe God is the prankster here. My face must be suitably blank because she tells me once again, for the third time, Mr. Elias, there is no treatment available, she says. It's too far along. I'm very sorry. The buds of tears form in the corners of her eyes, those eyes that have no wrinkles, and the left side of her mouth twitches in a sad dance. She stands and turns away and pretends to rearrange the various pamphlets on the counter. I shift ever so slightly on the examination table, and the paper underneath me crackles like electricity. She turns, holding out one of the pamphlets, and I take it from her smooth hands. She's a child. The words on the pamphlet read, Hospice Care and You. I take another deep breath. I am full to bursting with air. I let it out in a long sigh. Are you still blacking out? Her voice is probing, gentle. I shrug nod. Are your pain levels okay? I nod again. When I think I'll never find words, five of them disturb the surface. How long do I have? She clears her throat. Mr. Elias, I don't normally... Her voice collapses in on itself. Dr. Cortez, I've been trying to get you to call me Paul for over a year now. I try to chuckle, but no sound comes out. Mr. Elias, Paul, she says, I understand. I say, and my composure seems to catch her off guard. I shrug and give her a small but heavy smile. I'm 58 years old. I've had many good years, but I have a granddaughter in my care. She depends on me. She has no one else, and I'll need to find someone to take her in. My voice cracks. I clear it. My words come out all breath. It would help. I'm sure you understand if I had some idea. I have never felt so much like I'm underwater. I think of Mary. What was the last thing she thought going under? Was she afraid? Was she thinking of me? Could she see the light from the mid-morning sun glimmering too far above her? The doctor shakes her head. I don't normally... It's a guessing game. You could live much longer. 
My mouth tightens into a smile. I understand, I say again, trying to nudge her with a kind glance. Your best guess. She breathes quietly, a bird quivering in the brush. She licks her lips. Her head tilts, and her hand moves instinctively to the unbuttoned collar of her blouse, hiding the triangle of tender skin. She can't make eye contact with me as she says the words, and this fills me with an immense amount of affection for her. It's all I can do not to move across the small room and hug her. The soonest, any time, really, she seems to be holding her breath. She doesn't know where to look. Any time. And the longest, perhaps two or three months. Three months. Her chest quivers in what seems to be a stifled sob. It strikes me as both completely unprofessional and deeply human. Between any time and three months. I feel a subtle relief. There it is. The finish line. I think of you, and the relief turns sour. How can I leave you behind? Who will take care of you? The idea comes to me as I sit in Dr. Cortez's office. I will take you back to my hometown, back to where I grew up. Back to Nisa. I will show you the home I was born in, the creeks I fished, the small town where my friends and I caused trouble. To me, it feels like the last safe place in the world. And if I have to leave you, that seems the best place to do it. I don't know who will take you in, but the idea of driving with you through these early autumn days feels so good that I decide we will leave today, this afternoon. Or tomorrow, yes, tomorrow morning at the latest. I stand and take a deep breath as if everything is finally beginning. I approach the door and Dr. Cortez doesn't stand. I know she's very new at this. Her face is in her hands. I reach down and my fingertips graze her small shoulder and I squeeze her collarbone reassuringly. I'm surprised at how fragile it feels, like an eggshell. Thank you, Sarah, I whisper. You have always been forthright with me. I know you've tried many things and I appreciate that. This will get easier, telling people. Don't worry. She reaches up to squeeze my hand, but her reach stops somewhere short of her shoulder, short of my fingers. I walk away breathing, each step a deliberate effort to keep going. Outside, the late September air is soft and warmer than it should be. This is from Chapter 3 of The Weight of Memory, The White-Haired Woman. Grampy, why are you swinging? I want to swing. Go on, I stand, taking your backpack, but the first thing you do is hug me and I hold you there in the heat. You move quickly to the swing, and I watch you. As you glide, your long, dark hair moves in a rhythm, trailing out behind you like a comet, then clutching tight against your back, then flying again. Your eyes remind me of your father's, dark as coal, glittering. The sun brightens, and I notice people around me shading their eyes, still watching for their children to come out. A man who left his house wearing a flannel in the autumn heat takes it off and ties the arms around his waist. A woman steps smoothly out of her shoes and stands on the warm pavement in her bare feet, arms crossed. You know, you say in your innocent voice, we had a helper in our class today. Like a teacher's aide? You nod and giggle. The swing gets my stomach. I smile. You're good at swinging. Much better than I was. I always needed a push. Emphasizing your independence, you strain against the chain, stretch your legs, flying higher. She had very white hair or silver like moonlight. You seem disconcerted by the color. She helped me draw a map. Is that right? A map. 
Of what? Of the place where you grew up. There was a long bridge that goes over a river and a lake on the other side and a cabin on the shore. Chills flashed through my body along with a hint of nausea I think might be the result of this sickness. I have never told you about where I grew up. I have never told you about the town or the cabin or what happened at the lake. If all was well, I wouldn't tell you about it for another five or six years when you're older, but all is not well, at least not with me. Any time to three months. Time is running short. I am left wondering what things to tell you and what things I will take with me, what things you will never know. The silver-haired woman says she needs my help to find something, something that means a lot to her. It's somewhere in the town where you grow up. When are we going? My chest feels hollow. It has been a while since you've made things up like this, but the ring of truth laced through your tail unsettles me. In kindergarten, you told a lot of stories, but you were little, and the squeakiness of your voice gave you a pass, comforted your father and me, because of course a tiny little girl would have imaginary friends to take tea with. Of course a six-year-old's bear told her fairy tales and guarded her bed at night, of course. But at some point, it started feeling a bit odd, and now that you're eleven, almost twelve, it feels like a kind of willful misbehaving. The silliness is gone. At eleven, your eyes bear the light of seriousness, and you are often taken aback when I don't entirely believe your stories. Where I grew up, I clear my throat, and my next words fade. Is that right? I watch you swing. Maybe you did have an aid in class. Maybe it was a simple exercise, a coincidence. Is it so unlikely that a child would draw a map with a cabin or a lake? I am suddenly relieved talked back to earth by the quiet sound of the breeze and the dimming of the world as a cloud swallows the sun. I look for your teacher, and I see her standing by the school. Ms. Pena, I call out, one second, Pearl, you can keep swinging. I can't tell if you hear me or not. Your eyes are closed, your face pure childish ecstasy as you glide through the air. I lay your backpack down beside the swing and drift in the direction of your teacher, my hands in my pockets. Mr. Elias, you're looking well, Miss Pena says this with a flirtatious grin, though I'm at least ten years her senior. I don't know if she does this to be funny or to make me blush. When she sees that I'm embarrassed, she grins, mission accomplished. She adjusts the straps on a little girl's backpack before sending her off with her parent. Yes, well, thank you, I say, reaching up and nervously touching the marble-sized tumor above my ear, hidden among the weeds of my hair still there. It is always still there, no matter how many times I check, and it always seems the tiniest bit bigger. Although that's not possible, is it? That it would grow by the hour, by the minute? Pearl was telling me about her day. I try to keep my words light, but as Ms. Pena can tell, something is off. You're such a wonderful guardian, she says, again in a playful voice, trying to lighten things up. I wish I had a guardian like you, someone handsome to watch out for me. She seems almost embarrassed by her own boldness, like a small chipmunk darting out into the open before spinning around and vanishing into the shadows. I don't know what to say to that. She has been fishing for a date ever since Pearl showed up in elementary school four years ago. I clear my throat and swallow hard. The day feels much, much warmer. When I don't reply, she takes a more serious tone. Mr. Elias, is everything okay? Oh, fine, fine, I say. I clear my throat again. Is this a side effect of my impending demise, or is it only from the fall pollen? Or is it because of Ms. Pena with her red lipstick, her shining smile, her fitted blouse? 
Pearl was telling me about the teacher's aide in class today, I begin, scanning Ms. Pena's face. She doesn't blink. She doesn't say anything. I continue. She told me the aide was a woman with white hair who helped her draw a map. A map of where I grew up? The confusion finally sets in. I'm sorry, Mr. Elias, she says, shaking her head. We didn't have a teacher's aide. Did you draw maps? Pearl may have drawn a map during art class. Was there a substitute or an aide in art class? She shakes her head. Not that I know of. With that short sentence, the dread rises in me, and a dim version of the chills I felt earlier. Oh, Pearl, let's not do this again. Thank you, Ms. Pena. Thank you for your time. Ms. Pena gathers herself enough at least to regain her playful tone. My time is your time, Mr. Elias. Remember that. My time is always your time. She giggles, blushes, and turns to help another student. She peeks at me over her shoulder, but I turn, pretending not to notice. An active imagination is one thing, outright lies are another thing completely. I do not mind you pretending or drawing fantastical things, but this feels like an unnecessary deception, some deliberate crossing. But the image of the white-haired woman is not one unfamiliar to me. I remember the stories Mary used to tell, and another chill spreads through my body, and a lightness, and I wonder again how long I have. My mind is so distracted that at first I don't see that the swings are empty, both of them. They hang in that still day barely swaying, and your backpack is no longer leaning against the swing. You are gone. If you enjoyed today's conversation, won't you take a moment right now, open up that podcast app and look for the subscribe button right next to our podcast profile image. And we think this podcast is best enjoyed with friends. So tell a friend, click share episode in your podcast app and send a friend our link.